Welcome to Brain and a Vat. We are joined by Donnie Shahar, and we're going to be talking about why it's okay to eat meat. Donnie, would you like to start with a thought experiment? So a lot of the conversation about eating meat kicks off with this famous analogy that Peter Singer draws between eating other animals and eating severely cognitively disabled humans. And I've always been unsatisfied with the analogy to get a grip on what's going on with that dissatisfaction. I think it can be helpful to think about cases where the severely cognitively disabled humans are being eaten, um, but not necessarily by us. So here's a case. Imagine that sometime in the future, humanity gets struck by some incurable disease that attacks our brains and reduces our cognitive ability to basically that of, let's say, a cow. And suppose that cow-brained people or cow-brained humans don't go extinct. They can survive just like regular animals in the environment. And suppose that after a while, the planet has ran over. It's impossible to tell that there were ever civilizations here. And a bunch of aliens from space come down. They settle on the surface and they see that there are these delicious animals that they can you know, farm and eat. And suppose that they do farming better than we do. Let's say they do it humanely, sustainably, conscientiously in whatever ways they want. And so they're raising these cognitively reduced humans, slaughtering them humanely and eating them. So I guess the question is, if you are someone who does eat meat, thinks that it's okay to eat meat, and thinks not only that it's okay to eat meat, but it's okay to raise animals, kill them, for the sake of having food. It seems like there should be some pressure on you to say that what these aliens do is okay. And I guess for me, I actually feel the pull of that to say, yeah, actually in that kind of case, I agree. It would be no worse for the aliens to farm these animals that happen to be homo sapiens than it is for us to farm and eat the analogous kinds of cows and chickens and pigs and all the rest. And so then the puzzle becomes, well, how do you explain why we can't do that? And that raises some interesting questions of its own. But I think what it does is it kind of highlights that if we want a satisfying explanation for what's going on in this analogy that Singer has put so much weight on, a lot of other people have, we actually need to be thinking about our relationships with one another, what it is about other humans that makes them important to us and not so much about the characteristics of these severely cognitively limited humans themselves, that if those were the things that were doing the work, then it would be just as wrong for the space aliens to eat them as it would be for us. So I take it that the vegetarian wants to say that you couldn't eat the humans and so you couldn't also eat meat. So that's the line they want to adopt. So they want to say that there's something that's similar about these cognitively impaired humans to animals. So they're going to cite some sort of underlying similarity. I'm assuming that's the approach that the vegetarian is going to take. So yeah, let me back up. So the standard Peter Singer style of argument, which has been adapted by other people, is to say, well, look, if you don't think it's okay to farm and eat severely cognitively limited humans, but it is okay to, to do that with animals. You need to explain, well, what is it about these humans that justifies the difference in treatment? And you can't point to the normal things that people like to point to. You can't say, oh, well, they're, they have rationality or they can cooperate morally. To the extent that there's something about these humans that merits some special moral consideration, it seems that the relevant candidate qualities would be things like the ability to experience pleasure and pain, or maybe in Tom Reagan's version of the view, just the ability to sort of consciously experience one's life and various other characteristics that come along with, with being a conscious being. So those kinds of things might be sort of candidate explanations for the moral status of a severely cognitively limited human. But then the point that people like Singer and Reagan want to make is that lots of animals, including most of the ones that we raise for feed, would have all of those characteristics. And in fact, it's very easy to come up with examples of humans with cognitive limitations so severe that they're actually less capable and less sophisticated than, let's say, a 
perfectly normal pig, which is actually quite an intelligent animal. Yeah, I think what's interesting about your case is that you make the whole of humanity in that situation. And what you're actually doing is stripping humanity from the Homo sapiens. So there is no culture, there is no civilization. Part of the, I think, gut feeling that people have about why it would be wrong to eat the impaired is that it would reflect badly on those that were rational, that you would be denigrating humanity, that you'd be not necessarily wronging that being, but you'd be wronging the rest of humanity in doing it. And what's interesting about your case, you say, well, fine, let's just remove all those people from the equation. And we've just got really these human-like beings wandering around. Imagine they have no language, they experience the pleasure and pain, but they don't have the kinds of things that we think are important for humanity at large. And I imagine it's tilting the intuition that when we think about the alien race arriving on this planet and seeing the plentiful food and saying, well, this isn't exactly a civilization worth saving, it should tilt you in the direction of saying, have some human steak, have some long pig. I'm sure it's very tasty. And I think that's an interesting move. Yeah, so there's something interesting that you can do by adding humans back into the picture. So we could imagine a version of the case where right before the virus struck, humanity like sent a spaceship full of people out into space to explore the galaxy. And then imagine they return to find that all of their relatives have been rendered severely cognitively impaired and they're being farmed and eaten by aliens. And all of a sudden the aliens see, oh my God, there are these really smart, rational, morally cooperative humans. Isn't this awkward? And you might think that in that situation, there is a kind of awkwardness. The, the aliens might feel some kind of pressure to stop farming and eating the humans that they've been eating. But even there, it seems like the awkwardness is there in virtue of the fact that there are these intelligent humans on this, right? So if you imagine that the aliens were farming and eating cows in addition to humans, right? It wouldn't be like, oh my gosh, these humans have arrived. We suddenly realized that all sentient beings deserve respect, right? And so therefore we should stop farming and eating humans and cows. It would be the humans that the awkwardness would work pertain to and not the cows. And that seems to push again in the direction of this idea that if there's something that is going on that is pushing us to place a special value on these severely cognitively limited humans, it has to do with something about their connection to these cognitively more sophisticated beings. It's not really about their sort of intrinsic characteristics. So suppose Supercar was born. So Supercar is born tomorrow. Supercar is able to speak, learns language, picks it up from the farmer, maybe stands on two feet and maybe learns how to use the internet and starts campaigning for car rights. Would your view change on whether it's morally permissible to eat other cows? Yeah, I mean, cases like that are super hard because I think that we encounter situations like this in real life and they tend to be some of the hardest cases that we face so think about the debate over abortion people on the one hand you've got people who say no look this is just a bunch of cells they're not morally considerable in themselves you've got other people who are imbuing great moral significance into these same biological entities and in some sense, you could try to settle it by saying, well, can't you just try to accommodate these other people's concerns? But when what's at stake is that important, it can be hard for people to wrap their minds around putting aside their own values, their own preferences, and their own visions of the good life, and just sort of subordinate their behavior to the concerns of some other group or some other person who they don't share. And yeah, I mean, that's a real puzzle, I think. It's a puzzle that we face in real life, and it's a puzzle that we would face if we had super cows or if we had human spacefarers coming back to, to find aliens eating their cognitively disabled brethren. I wish I knew, I wish I had a satisfying solution to that puzzle, but I'm not sure that I do. But I want to push you further on that. So why is it a problem or why should it dissuade the aliens from eating these cognitively disabled humans or us from eating cows if there's the, su 
if there's our level of intelligence humans that come back from the stars or supercar that gets born, what exactly is going on there? Are we not wanting to eat the cows and the humans because of the suffering that supercar would have? Or is it something else? You say it's the relationships that that supercar has to other cows, but why should that matter? insofar as it doesn't necessarily result in suffering if those relationships are threatened. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there are different ways of trying to flesh out what it is about the relationships that matters. I don't think that it's promising to try to sort of just ground it in the suffering of the intelligent beings that, that you don't want to offend them. But it might have to do with something more like enabling them to see themselves as living in a moral community that operates on base of mutual respect, where I think that there are these other beings that are effectively like committing a sort of ongoing genocide. My ability to live in this culture as an equal citizen and view this as a just state of affairs is going to be deeply undermined. And so like you as someone who might not really care about living on terms of mutual respect with cattle, let's say, might nevertheless want to live on terms of mutual respect with the super cow. And so that might push you in the direction of trying to find some arrangement where you can both see yourselves as living in a tolerably just order together. And in that case, the consideration on the other side is not really as strong as it is in some of the real world cases. So like in the case of abortion, someone who wanted to accommodate a pro-life person might have to take on an extremely onerous burden in basically giving up autonomy over their reproductive decisions in order to accommodate somebody else. And you might say, well, look, that's just a bridge too far. Like, I'm not going to do that. And really, I mean, if you think about meat eaters and vegetarians in a way, the accommodation here is a challenge that already exists, right? You don't need super cows to have people in society who look at cattle as being deeply morally considerable. Lots of vegetarians already do. And so you have this kind of challenge of accommodation even today. And we see that like that people are willing to go some way toward that accommodation. So you see like vegetarian options on menus and things. And people think maybe there should be vegetarian options on menus, even if they're not vegetarian. But a lot of those same people will say, yeah, but not Having meat around at all would be a bridge too far. Like, I'm not willing to go that far in, in the name of accommodation. And those are real challenges in coexistence in the face of conscientious disagreement. And so, I mean, I wish that I had a solution to how you can get people to live together peacefully in the face of those kinds of disagreements. But unfortunately, right, uh, this is like the problem of civilization in a way, going back to the Reformation and even before, just trying to crack this puzzle one way or the other. Well, I'll give you an interesting case. So when Lincoln campaigned for the idea that we should abolish slavery across all of the states in America, there was a contrary view, which was to say, look, you Northerners want to do this, but us Southerners don't. Just give each state individual freedom and we'll coexist alongside each other. So some people are going to have slaves, some people aren't, and that's cool. It'll be like the meat eaters and the vegetarians. And the problem is that those that think that slavery is deeply immoral because you're infringing on the interests of other beings say it's not tolerable. You can't have slavery in some parts of our country. You're performing it an immense wrong. And we can imagine that you're one of the people on this alien spaceship you arrive back on your planet Earth, and the aliens say, look, Donnie, don't worry, we're not going to eat you. We can tell you're not like the others. You're one of the good ones. But if you want, we'll take you on a little tour. And you're walking around the human farms, and they're sort of making these growling sounds and walking around naked. And they're getting branded with irons, and they're getting their throats slit, and they're howling in pain and crushed together. And it, it sort of looks basically like what you'd expect to see in Nazi Germany in the 40s. And at some level, you go, pretty glad they're not going to do this to me. But... I'm pretty revolted by what they're doing to these other people who certainly look like me and seem to really not want the stuff to be done to them. And so you might think that we shouldn't have the practice. And not only should we not have the practice in the sense that, well, like I'm not going to eat the human flesh, but no one should be allowed to do this. We should abolish it entirely like we should abolish slavery. Yeah, I mean, totally. So 
I think that's the natural view to hold, right? As a human being. And the question is, how moved would you expect the aliens to be by that? And sometimes that's the sort of thing that people have to fight wars over, right? Because at some level, you try to convince people. And at some level, I mean, Bernard Williams had this line, like, whose side are you on? Is what certain kinds of questions ultimately boil down to. And I think that at some level, if you're on that tour and the aliens are saying, look, we understand how terrible this must look for you. So we'll really try our best to make sure that you never have to think about this, but we're not going to stop. That's the sort of thing where it's like, okay, those are fighting words. And unless we find some way around that, we are going to be at odds. And I think that's the situation that we face. I mean, think about the issue of abortion as well. Like we can try to do everything in our power to make it so that abortion is done in a way that is behind the scenes and as sanitized as possible. But if somebody thinks, deeply believes that this is a kind of mass murder, it's going to be that same kind of unease where, you know, the question becomes, all right, well, how do I stop? Even if these people don't think that they should have to accommodate me, they're not really moved by my disgust. One way or another, I've got to stop this from happening. And I don't think that observing the existence of disagreement necessarily would mean that you should sort of back down or, or abandon that conviction. So I want to bring this conversation back to eating meat in this world where we all cognitively abled, or the vast majority of us, and there's no aliens who are threatening to eat us. Now we have to make the decision, are we going to eat meat? And my understanding is that your position is that it is permissible to eat meat in that situation, given that there's no super cows. So if a super cow arises, then you're going to be more hesitant, I take it. But in the absence of super cow, it's okay to eat cows. Is that the position? Am I getting that correct? Yeah. So I think that once we start entertaining the idea that it could be okay for the aliens to eat meat in that kind of case that we've been discussing, then that opens up at least the possibility that you could ethically eat meat. But I think that in important sense doesn't really settle the issue at all because the way that I laid out that example was to say that the aliens are better at farming than us. They raise the cows humanely and sustainably and conscientiously. And that was what I hope made it plausible and that there might not actually be anything bad going on. But if you look at the way that meat is produced now, the reality is that Almost none of the meat that people buy in the supermarket or order at restaurants is produced in a way that could be described the way that I described the aliens' farming practices. And so in a way, getting your head around the idea that it could be possible to eat meat ethically only sort of opens the door. And the real challenge is figuring out, can we reconcile ourselves to continuing to participate in a practice of eating products that are produced in ways that are not humane, are not environmentally friendly, are often produced through lots of objectionable practices toward workers, let's say, or toward the communities that, that these operations are operating in. And so I think that is, that's a real challenge and one that we can't really solve just by saying that if meat were produced in a totally ethical way, then it might be okay to eat it. We need a different kind of, of argument there. Yes, as you say, you're in the realm of reality where you've got all this torture and suffering in the production of meat. And vegetarians as a movement are going to say, well, over time, they've ensured that so many fast food chains, which only served fleshy meat burgers, are now offering vegetarian options. I think Burger King even did a thing where they gave people the Beyond Meat Burger, which has no meat in it, and tricked them. People were sort of convinced they'd eat meat. Some, I think, even complained about it afterwards. But there's a sense in which the movement has provided people with options. And you might think that as a movement, it's able to lead to less suffering. In other words, you've gotten this large number of people together who are, instead of eating meats, eating the veggie burgers or eating their carrots and peas. And this is leading to a lot less death on the one hand, which seems like something to care about, and then a lot less 
torture and suffering on the other hand. I think that's exactly right. I mean, the vegetarian movement has, without any question, accomplished a lot of really important things and hopefully will continue to do so. It seems like in a lot of ways, the things are at their infancy would be with the creation of all these new products and alternatives that are slowly working their way into the marketplace. And I think that in terms of thinking about vegetarianism making an impact, there are two ways to think about things, one of which sort of lends itself to the narrative that you just laid out where vegetarianism is this very valuable and an important movement that people should be commended for contributing to. And another of which I think goes beyond what you said, but where I think you were trying to drive at, which is that it's obligatory, therefore, to participate in this. And I think that in order to get that stronger conclusion, more needs to be said besides just that this is a movement that is producing an important good through collective efforts, because there are lots of important movements that are producing really great results through collective efforts. And although I think arguably people have an obligation to participate somehow in advancing solutions to problems or promoting good in the world, it's not the case that everybody has a specific duty to contribute to each cause in each way. And so at least on the face of things, it seems like something more would be needed to show why, okay, now individuals have a duty to become vegetarian instead of saying, look, like one of the great ways that you could, that you could sort of pitch in would be to join this movement for all of the reasons that you said. So if I understand correctly, you're saying that it's a good thing to join the movement. So it's a super erogatory good. It's something over and above the call of duty, but it's not a requirement. Now, if you take that line of reasoning, could you apply it equally to things like voting, where you've got this collective that perhaps is doing a good, I mean, I'm an anarchist, so I don't think they are, but let's just assume that the party that you're gonna vote for is gonna be great. And if they come into power, they'll do great things. Is it super erogatory to vote for them? So let me, give two answers. The first is just to this sort of characterization of it as a supererogatory action. I think that's not exactly the way that I'd want to put it. I think the better way just to sort of stick within the lingo of duty would be to think about it as um, one way of fulfilling an imperfect duty. So imperfect duties are ones where you have an obligation to do a certain kind of thing to a certain extent, but it's not necessarily the case that you have a, a responsibility to do that thing each time you have an opportunity, right? So charity would be a common example of this, right? Maybe people have an obligation to give to charity, but if some particular person on a particular day says, hey, can I have $5? It doesn't follow from the fact that you have a duty to be charitable, that you therefore have a duty to give that person $5 right now. And sort of along the same lines, you might think that people have an obligation to take action on the world's problems in one way or another. And it's not supererogatory for them to do so. They actually do have to do that. But there is still some flexibility in terms of exactly how they discharge that duty. And so on that kind of analysis, the vegetarian comes along and says, hey, can you give up meat? And you say, well, that's sort of in on this line of thinking to giving the $5 to this particular person. So that's just a conceptual clarification. To answer the question about voting though directly, uh, I think that there is something interesting about the voting example that sort of distinguishes it from the meat eating example, which is that in the case of voting, you have a pretty effective scheme of social cooperation that's actually getting people to show up to the polls and cooperate together in order to achieve this really important good of democratic governance. And I think it's interesting to think about an alternative reality where imagine that you lived in a country where almost nobody voted. And so maybe they do hold votes every once in a while. They don't really generate that much legitimacy, but some people participate in them. They might do some good, but not as much good as other things, right? In that kind of environment, I think it would be easier for the voting case to look like the meat eating case, right? Where you say, look, yeah, the people who are voting there, they might be accomplishing some things, but it's not the case that this is this really robust 
norm-based scheme where everybody expects that everybody is going to show up and do their part. Instead, it's a very small subset of the community that's come together to do some good. And maybe a person in that environment says, yeah, showing up to vote and discharging that kind of civic responsibility would be one way that I could contribute to helping my community become that, but depending on the details, right? How onerous is it to you to vote? How much good do you expect it to do? What are the prospects for democracy going forward? And so on. You could see somebody say, well, this is just not where I'm going to focus my efforts on being one of the, let's say, 3% of the community that's participating in this particular enterprise. So I'm going to do something else instead. I think that would be, that would be a legitimate answer in a way that in the context of really successful cooperation on democratic governance, it's harder for somebody to, to say, well, I'm going to be the person who's going to free ride on everybody else. So the way that you've set it up is that it's a form of social activism that there's a number of different you can take. It's an imperfect duty. So I want to push back against that a bit. Imagine someone says, look, You've got whatever hobby you do, you play chess or board games or whatever it is. What I do is I roam the streets and I find stray dogs and I put them into a bag and I take them home and then I get them really riled up and I get them to fight each other to the death. And if they don't fight each other to the death, I kill them myself. Sort of at some point I get bored and I shock them or cut their noses off or whatever it is. And it's enormously entertaining for me. And we say, well, hold on a second, like you're performing an active thing that's causing suffering in the world, it feels like you're doing something wrong and you ought to refrain from it. And you can imagine thinking that person ought not to do that. Now, let's say if you accept that's the case, that they're doing something wrong, imagine you say, I I would never do that. I would never go and capture those dogs. But the stakes that this guy makes from those dogs after they've been tortured to death are just delicious. And so I just get the byproducts. I'm not doing kidnapping the dogs myself. I just get this guy to do it and I eat the steaks or I watch the videos of the dog fighting and I get my jollies from that. I would never participate in myself directly. You've outsourced it to someone else to do. The harm still happening in the world doesn't seem like you can just say, look, you've got the things that you do for fun. And I've got the things that I do for fun and I've got this indirect loop. I'm not the guy who's actually doing it myself. So let me off the hook. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that those kinds of cases are, in a way, they're helpful in, in that they, they illuminate this idea that like, even if you're not involved. So, I mean, you can tell two versions of the story, right? One, one version of the story is that it's because you're buying the stakes that the guy is able to do this, right? And so like every time you buy a stake, like that's another dog that's going in the bag. And so that version of the story is one where you're just, you're maybe not doing the thing yourself, but you're in some sense like paying somebody else to do it in a way that is like creating more harm in the world directly through your actions. But I think the version of the story that's more sort of germane to this kind of conversation is one where it's a lot harder to draw the causal connection between your decision to eat the steaks and the decision that the person make to catch the dogs and put them in the bags. And where now it's just a question of like, do you want to participate in a market where this is the sort of thing that's going on? Let me ask you, because you haven't given me some details that I could use. Are you envisioning this as like you have a guy and that you can get these stakes, but this is just like a really weird thing and nobody else is doing this? Or are you envisioning that like throughout our society, like 97% of the population is eating like the dog bag steaks. They have been doing this for generations. The, the culture has been sort of built up around this. Nobody really thinks that there's anything like particularly wrong with it, except for a very small subset of the population, some of whom have tried to sort of take up action against this, but they haven't really been successful in ending the practice and don't seem particularly poised to do so. Are you thinking of this more as the first kind of case or this more like the second kind of case? Yeah, I think that's a good thing to bring up. I mean, it might very well be the case that at various times in human history, cultures have engaged in widespread practices that we would now think of as totally abhorrent like slavery, for example. And we don't think that, well, the culture thought it was right, so it was fine. What's the problem? We think, no, there was an actual answer to the problem, which was slavery was always wrong, and those guys are doing a bad thing. And so I don't think it would matter 
In other words, which world we lived. In other words, the fact that a whole bunch of people thought it was fine to have dogfighting and capture these poor little puppies and put them in the bags doesn't change the moral equation as to whether it's right or wrong. I think the bit that you get that it's interesting is what if it didn't have a causal effect on how many puppies got put in the bag? Would that make a moral difference? In other words, if this guy's my killer for hire and he doesn't really like doing this stuff, he just needs to make a buck and I'm basically sending him onto the street so I can get my puppy steaks. You can say, well, there's a causal connection here. You're like a hired, the guy who's hiring the assassin and you're morally liable for it. Maybe he is too. But in the situation where it's just a byproduct, he says, look, all I want is the dog fighting. And I mean, you just happen to like these puppy steaks. I'm going to kill as many dogs the same, regardless of whether you buy the stuff or not. Is it nonetheless wrong to participate in this? Now, there was no extra puppy gets killed, but we think that the fact that you're getting a benefit out of the situation. I mean, we can think of a couple of different variants, and I think this is a kind of close case to yours, but you can imagine the serial killer that goes out and kills women, and you say, it'd be so nice to have a brand new hat. And this guy's got all this excess skin lying around, and I'm sure it'd be the fanciest hat in town. And he's going to kill the same number of women anyway. The other sort of case that I have in mind is, imagine someone who has a Kickstarter project. And they say, you know, what I did a couple of years ago was I kidnapped a whole bunch of Indonesian school children. Very easy to get your hands on, actually. And I filmed myself raping and murdering them. And we've got all this footage, and we just don't have enough money to make DVDs. And don't worry, the kids are already dead. They've all been raped and killed. The money that you're going to give us is for the edit. And then you can get your own personal DVD. Where do you think it's wrong to participate in that Kickstarter? And imagine that the Kickstarter is so successful that he says, well, I think I should go out and do that again. Just like when people go and buy their steaks, the meat industry says, well, this is a good business. We should keep farming the cows and killing them. So they all seem like variations on a theme of you're not necessarily causing directly any more violence, but you're definitely participating in something that I think churns most people's stomachs. Yeah, so I think that the cases involving the people, right, the second two of your examples, I think get us back into the domain of thinking about the possible differences between human beings and animals. Because I think you can tell stories where no harm is being done to anybody, and yet it still seems sort of abhorrent. So imagine that the skin hats are like just like they're going around to morgues where like unidentified bodies have come up and they've worked something out where these bodies, nobody cares about them, but the guy is just buying them up and skinning them and make hats out of them. It still seems like you shouldn't wear people as hats. And it seems like if animals are like that, then we don't need to talk about the factory farming or anything like that. You could be doing it with roadkill and it would still raise some problems. So I think in a way, right, there, there's a sort of upstream question there. But just to keep the focus on the animal cases, the reason I pointed to the sort of cultural milieu is just that I agree with you that there are sort of facts of, of the matter about whether the dog fighting is wrong, let's say. And similarly, right, with, when we talked about human slavery, obviously that was wrong when nobody cared about it. But it seems like in the case of the market for the dog fighting products, if you are in an environment where people generally don't sort of recognize a difference here and where maybe this is like an important feature of the way that people are living their lives and it's built into their cultures, built into ordinary ways of life and you sort of being disgusted at this. This would be between you and the people who you're interacting with, but it's not some way of like upholding a social norm against this kind of consumption. That strikes me as an importantly different situation from one where maybe you're still causally efficacious, but nevertheless, this is the kind of thing that people just don't do, right? People just don't eat bag tortured dogs. And even if a guy who's torturing dogs in bags and you can get some good steaks off him, without having any impact on, on the production, you would still be sort of violating a social norm that would be successfully producing like an important good in at least hopefully reducing the amount of this sort of thing that's going on and controlling the production of these, these states. Whereas when you are sort of one of the very few people who sort of 
idiosyncratically like squeamish about this actual bad practice, you participating in the sort of censuring of the practice is, I mean, I don't want to say it's pointless, but it's a way of taking a stand on an important problem that sort of looks like many other ways that people can take stands on important problems. So just to give an analogy, we know now that a lot of the products that we buy clothing wise are produced in factories that often don't respect decent standards of how the workers are treated, not just in the sense that the workers are not paid very much and made to work in poor conditions, but also like rampant sexual harassment and abuse, denial of bathroom breaks and other basic things that that maybe people didn't necessarily agree to coming in. Oftentimes companies will not give benefits that they contractually agreed to provide or force people to work overtime without additional compensation. And so like these are clear rights violations, right? And somebody who responds to these clear rights violations by saying, I'm just not going to participate in this. That person's taking a stand on something that is a genuine problem, right? It is clearly abhorrent to run factories where you are sexually abusing your workers and denying them benefits and violating their contractual rights and so on and so forth. And all of us, I mean, I don't know where you guys got your clothes, but most people are participating in these markets. But I think it makes a moral difference that these are markets that when you take a stand on it, you aren't sort of helping to uphold the moral majority that's keeping this problem in check. But you are in some way trying to be a pioneer and trying to sort of push back against the overwhelming trend of things, which is where people participate in this market. So two things. The one is that maybe Mark's initial example of the dogs is not really fair because perhaps dogs can participate in relationships in a watered-down way compared with humans. So dogs seem to have relationships with others. We have relationships with dogs, and that's a driving force behind the power of the objection, right? It's like, oh my goodness, we shouldn't do this to dogs. But I don't think you can then imply we shouldn't do it to cows because they might lack that capacity for relationships with each other and humans with cows, at least generally. Perhaps there are some cows that do get along really well and perhaps there are some humans that really do value their cows. But as a whole, societally, we don't do that. And so perhaps the force of the objection is reduced. And then secondly, this notion of generalization, this notion of a trend, so perhaps the vegetarian says something like this. If we all ate meat, if none of us were fighting this, then wouldn't that be a worse world than if we all fought this? And so you must play your part. It starts with you. Your action should be measured based on if we generalized your action, what would the outcome be? Yeah, good. So, I mean, I take the point that dogs are special. They in a way, dogs play a similar role to the severely cognitively disabled humans because it's not something about dogs themselves that explains why they're so special to us. In terms of their objective characteristics, like dogs and pigs are, are. pigs are super smart, they're cooperative, they can have relationships, they live in social groups. There's nothing about a dog that I, at least that I know that makes them particularly fancy compared to pigs. And yet people are much more squeamish about doing things to dogs than pigs. So I take the point, but I also think like you could take the example and make it about pigs and I would still sort of feel the pull of Mark's concern. And so I think these other kinds of features are important. Turning to the idea about generalization, I think that this idea of doing what you would want other people to do, right? It plays a really important role in our moral thinking and our moral practice in two different ways. One way is just this kind of idea that the way that we think about what moral behavior consists in is to apply this kind of universalization test to say, well, what would be the right thing if everybody did it? Or what would happen if everybody did things the way that you do? And then there's also getting back to some of the conversations that we've been having about, about the importance of norms, right? There's also a lot of important stuff that just sort of 
depends on whether other people actually are in fact doing a certain thing or are not. And that's different. So just to back up and flesh that out a little bit. So take take an example of smog pollution. I was trying to look up what the deal is with catalytic converters in South Africa. My understanding is that now they're required, but that's relatively new. Is that true? I think that is right. And we do have quite a severe pollution problem in urban cities. Yeah. So in the United States as well, there was this problem. I mean, still is to some extent. My understanding just from a very brief read is that a lot of your guys' challenges have to do with coal burning in power plants rather than automobile emissions. But in the United States, a big source of a lot of urban air pollution was people just driving cars that didn't have good emissions control technology. And you might say, well, look, like there are things that we can put on cars that can solve this problem. Catalytic converters basically work by making your emissions go through various chemical processes that basically eliminate some of the most serious pollutants that contribute to things like smog. If everybody had a catalytic converter on their car, it solves the problem. And so you might think, therefore, people should have catalytic converters. And that seems fair enough as long as you think other people are going to follow suit. But the problem is that if you are living in a community where most people don't have catalytic converters, then it looks like you as an individual are taking on a pretty substantial cost. You're reducing your car's performance. The catalytic converter itself is expensive. You have to use a different kind of gasoline than you might have to use without the technology. And so there are various sort of inconveniences that go along with this. And it seems like depending on how inconvenient it is and depending on how much good you would do as one individual adopting the catalytic converter when other people aren't. It seems like maybe the fact that it would be good if everybody had catalytic converters doesn't settle the question of whether you have an obligation to do it on your own. And so that's sort of different from the sort of just universalization thinking where people say, all right, well, the way that we're going to test a norm is just to say, well, what would happen if everybody did that? It seems like the catalytic converter example illustrates that in a lot of cases, it can be okay to be a kind of conditional cooperator where you say, I'm going to be happy to cooperate if other people cooperate. But if other people aren't cooperating, then I don't necessarily have to be the first mover. Um, Again, being the first mover might be a good thing to do. It might be really valuable to have some people who choose to be the first mover. And maybe we should all consider being the first mover on something. But this looks like the kind of thing that would fit into the a sort of general picture where, you know, being the early adopter of the catalytic converter is something that is not like directly obligatory for every person to do. And so by the same kind of thinking, it, the fact that it would be really good if everybody stopped eating meat from factory farms doesn't necessarily show that it's obligatory for each individual to do that in a world where most other people aren't following suit. So a couple of thoughts. The first is that it seems that you think obligations would stem partly from the social. So if lawmakers started saying you're not allowed to serve meat at restaurants, that would be a reason for people to not eat meat for you. In other words, there's some authority structure that's creating a rule like obliging people to have catalytic converters or enough of a social move where people started to frown on you if you're eating meat and thought it was a bad thing, then you'd think that's, those would be reasons to pursue it and to follow the crowd. But in the yeah. world in which we're at, which is where it's a minority. I think in the States, something like 4% of people say they're vegetarians or vegan. And let's say it really is the case that it's inefficacious, that your private choice will not save a single cow, a single chicken. It's pissing in the wind. It makes no difference whatsoever. Then I wonder about this move to say, this is a social activism that we should endorse. So you can imagine someone who says, Look, the social activist cause that I've taken up is recycling. And so what I do every weekend is I go and spend my time sorting through my garbage. I take all the plastic and I put it in my sink and I wash it and I drive off to the plastic recycling place. But once you go and add up the carbon credits and you work out how much hot water they're using and how much fuel they're using, they basically come out at zero. 
that they've done no good in the world whatsoever. We would say this is a waste of time, that you shouldn't be doing this, that your private choices might give you the illusion that you're making social good in the world, but they're not. So you don't get any pats on the back, and actually we should think less of you, because once I've told you that what you're doing is totally and utterly inefficacious, that basically you're rolling a rock up a hill and it rolls back down and you keep doing this over and over again, but you could be enjoying the pleasures of the book. You could be thinking of all the things you're depriving yourselves from, all the wonderful social joy of getting together for the barbecue. You've missed out on all this good stuff and you saved no cows. So we should think less of you. Yeah, so I mean, I think that if vegetarianism construed as a type of action were inefficacious in the sense that vegetarians don't accomplish anything, then that would be absolutely right. But I think the sort of interesting subtlety here is that although individual vegetarians on the margin don't necessarily cause something different to happen that would have happened otherwise, it's nevertheless true, as you pointed out before, that when you get lots of vegetarians working together, important things start to happen. And so you can think about it, imagine being at a sporting event and there are people cheering in the audience and there's, suppose something hangs on how loud the crowd is feeling. It might be that as one individual in the crowd, it would be impossible for you to meaningfully influence that outcome by whether or not you cheered or kept silent. And so in that sense, as an individual on the margin, you would be inefficacious. But nevertheless, you might think the way that changes in noise level happen is for large numbers of people in the crowd to change their behavior. And in order for those large changes to happen, individuals have to sign on and contribute. And so each one of those individuals might not be really making a material difference on their own, but nevertheless, when they sign on and when they, let's say, start cheering to make it louder, they are sort of contributing to the outcome in which the group of cheerers made it louder. And they should be celebrated for that in sort of the way that, I mean, it's different because of the way that, um, that the thresholds work in voting, but an individual voter doesn't necessarily change the election. And yet when people co cooperate to elect a candidate, we say they weren't necessarily just purely wasting their time, even though it might be true that for any one person in the election, uh, they could have stayed home and the other people would have been sufficient to produce the result. Nevertheless, the, the contribution has moral significance. I just think that once you start thinking in terms of this contribution to a collective outcome rather than in terms of this direct marginal impact that you as an individual are having, it becomes a lot easier to think about this as a way of joining a good cause rather than a way of preventing some harm that you would have directly created if you had bought a chicken once. I, I, I'm not convinced by the distinction. So Donny, I eat meat and I'm very glad to have you on the show, but I still think there might be something a little wrong with it. Not very wrong. I still like to think of me eating meat as a slight contribution to a bigger problem. And yes, it's true. If you remove my contribution, it's very unlikely that the total amount of meat in the world would reduce. It's very likely it would stay the same, but I still feel like I'm participating in that in some way, just like the voter participates in a good outcome in some way, even if his individual vote isn't going to sway the election. And given that, the kind of position I want to favor is one where eating meat is wrong, but it's not so bad. It's a slight wrong. And if we were to try and avoid all the slight wrongs in our lives, well, we would be avoiding a lot of activities. So this line is by Susan Wolf. It, she doesn't discuss eating meat specifically, but I think this is a good application. She, she says that there's so many things in our lives which are slightly wrong, which are slightly immoral, but we don't think that we have to avoid all of those activities, that we, it would be so demanding of us, we would be moral saints at that point. Instead, what we say is, well, there's other values in our lives Mark mentioned some of us, some of them, it tastes really good to have meat. You can have a barbecue with family and friends. It's a bonding experience, et cetera, et cetera. It's not to say that you can't reproduce those experiences in other ways, but they bring about positives and the eating meat brings about a tiny negative. And so on the whole, we judge, well, yes, it would have been great not to eat the meat, but only a little great, just slightly, you do a slightly less bad. Whereas 
when you don't eat the meat, you also deprive yourself of larger goods that aren't moral goods, other values. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I'm not that committed to using the terms in the specific ways that I am sort of habituated to use them. The way I would say what you just said is that there is something bad about eating meat. And that seems clearly true. There's also other things that are good about eating. And I don't know that the way to think about it is that the good things like outweigh the bad, or I don't know exactly how I'd want to say it, but just that it seems like there is room for you to exercise discretion in in rooting out all of the things in your life about which there's something bad. Because we, our lives are full of such things. Every time you turn on the lights, depending on where you get your electricity from, there's something bad about that, right? When you drive to the store or even buy vegetables, there's something bad about those things too. And so complicity is, I think, a kind of pervasive part of life in a modern interconnected civilization where there are lots of unaddressed problems. And the fact that we are complicit in lots of problems, I think gives us some reason to maybe prioritize those problems in particular as we think of where to allocate our efforts as activists. So the fact that you are part of creating a certain kind of problem might give you more reason at least on the margin, to to focus on tackling it. A reason that might be outweighed by other considerations that push in favor of focusing elsewhere, but nevertheless a reason. You might try to tackle the factory farming issue in other ways besides becoming vegetarian. There's nothing really necessary about giving up meat in order to take action on the problem. And there might be certain respects in which meat eaters can make more progress on this because people have certain kinds of attitudes toward vegetarians and might not be as willing to listen to one in the context of reforming meat industry practices. And yet the fact that you're complicit in a serious wrong, I think at least puts a little finger on the scale in favor of reducing your complicity as such. And I think that the fact that we're complicit in problems makes it so that we might need to ask a bit more of ourselves than we would otherwise. So there are these problems that exist in the world. Maybe you think we have an obligation to do something about them regardless of our involvement in that. But the fact that we're involved, I think, should make us feel obligated to do more. And so I think, yeah, there is something bad about this. There's something bad about a lot of things that we do. And there are various kind of moral upshots to that. But I don't think that those moral upshots sort of push all the way in the direction of saying that now it's morally obligatory to respond to this specific problem specifically by giving up And so I think that in a way, that's just a different way of saying what you just said. So I guess I agree with you, but I find myself not talking about it in exactly the same way. 